0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: From the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 till the end of the world, so it goes up, including our own time and beyond, to the coming of, the, of Christ on the last day. Um, I don't think it focuses on the coming of Christ, but there is reference to it, I believe. And I think, for example, the seventh trumpet and what happens there suggests the resurrection, which is the second coming of Christ and so forth. Now, in this little book, there are four major things all of which are applied to this period of time, 42 months, or 1260 days, or time, times and a half a time. One of those is the length of time that the temple, or the holy city, would be trampled. And, of course, that's already been covered in the first two verses of chapter 11. The second thing is the length of time the two witnesses are preaching. That's in the rest of chapter... well, the next part of chapter 11. Then the third thing is the length of time the woman who flees from the dragon is kept alive in the wilderness by God. That's in chapter 12. And then the fourth thing that is this length of time is the blasphemy of the beast in chapter 13. So during this time, we have the trampling of Jerusalem by the Gentiles. We've got the witness of the two witnesses. We've got the protection of the woman in the wilderness, and we've got the beast making his trouble. Now if I'm correct, then these things all are fulfilled in the whole age of the church, and, and they span that period of time. Now that would mean that the two witnesses are not really just two people, but that shouldn't really surprise us. For the most part, uh, for example, the the bride... Which is represented as a, as a woman is really a city. Also, the harlot, which is represented as a woman, is also a city, Babylon. Individuals are often compared um, with, uh, are actually symbolic for larger groups. And uh, similarly, things that aren't people at all are, are likened to people, like death is like a horse rider and Hades following. So re- we have to realize Revelation symbolism you need to be careful about uh, rendering a symbol too literal. Why would there be two witnesses? Well, even if we don't identify them with anyone in particular, there has to be two, because according to the Jewish principle of the Bible, found in Deuteronomy and then repeated several times in the New Testament, the witness of two is true. If there's only one witness, according to the Jews, you can't trust the witness. There's no guarantee that's true. But the witness of two is true. In John's Gospel, he says it is written in your law, the witness of two is true. I'm one witness and my father is a second witness. Two witnesses, then, simply symbolizes a true and reliable testimony. It doesn't matter who the two people are or even if they represent two people at all. Just the phenomenon of two witnesses means this is a true testimony. My belief is the two witnesses represent the church through the whole age of the church. For the past 2,000 years, they are the two witnesses. Now, in the symbolism of it, they are said to bear testimony for three and a half years, which I've already said I, I identify with that whole period. They will be killed and they'll, their bodies will lie in the streets uh, for three and a half days, which is a very short time compared to three and a half years. And after that, they'll rise from the dead and be caught up into heaven which I believe is actually the Resurrection and the Rapture of the Church on the last day. So I think the whole career of the Church is mentioned here. Now, it is true many popular teachers want these witnesses to be either uh, Moses and Elijah or perhaps Enoch and Elijah. Uh, Moses and Elijah seems to be you know, very credible because Moses and Elijah would represent the Law and the Prophets to the Jews. Moses the Law, Elijah the Prophets. And also we see that there's four miracles associated with these two witnesses. They can stop the rain from coming for three and a half years. Elijah did that. They can also call fire from heaven on their enemies. Elijah did that too. They can also turn water into blood. Well, Moses did that. And they can smite the earth with plagues, which Moses also did. So the four things they do, two of the things that are said they do are like what Elijah did, and two are like what Moses did. And this is no doubt why many Bible teachers would say this is Moses and Elijah coming back in the end times for half of the tribulation period for three and a half years because they take that literal. I take it differently. I think what it, these miracles do in fact point to Moses and Elijah, but they're not saying that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Rather, this, this witnessing company has now been uh, bequeathed by God with the powers and the authorities that were in Moses and Elijah. That is to say uh, the law and the prophets. The the authority of the law and the prophets has been now transferred to the church so that what Moses and the prophets did in the Old Testament, the church now does in this age. So we have miraculous power. We don't do exactly the same miracles Moses did or, or, or Elijah. That's not what's being suggested, but rather Moses and Elijah are uh, pictured. I mean, these miracles specifically are reminiscent of those two guys, but they represent the law and the prophets, that is the authority of God's witnesses in the Old Testament, and that authority is now belonging to the two witnesses representing the church. Now, it says that they, they will not uh, be hindered, even though the beast will make war against them. Now, if this is two men, you don't make war against two men, you may be arrest them or shoot them or, you know, you uh, persecute them, but war is something that takes place between armies. There's a, a spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God, represented by the, the true body of Christ, on the one hand, and, and the kingdom of Satan. That's a, a warfare that's going on now. It's been going on ever since Jesus was here. We'll say more about that in chapter 12. But, um. When it says the beast at the end, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the bottom says, pit will make war and kill them, and their witness will be silenced. But it says when their testimony is finished, when the church has finished its mission, then there will be this apparent persecution That looks like it silences the church. The whole world rejoices. They send gifts to each other. This is all simply to depict the fact that the world is glad to be rid of them. But then to the world's chagrin, they rise up three and a half days later and ascend into heaven. And I personally believe that what this is saying is that through most of the church age, the church is invincible. But near the end, and we'll see this again in chapter 20, near the end of the church age, there will be, the devil will be given a chance to seemingly conquer the church. That chance will be very brief, and it'll be right at the end, just before Jesus comes back and the resurrection and the rapture take place. That's my opinion. Uh, That'll be supported again when we get to chapter 20, but in a different way, with different images. Now in chapter 12, we see An interesting, it's a self-contained vision. (coughs) There's essentially three main characters. There's a woman who's pregnant. There's a baby that's born from the woman, a male child. And there's a dragon. The, The chapter opens with the woman in birth pangs ready to give birth to this child. We are told that the child is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a very clear messianic reference. It comes from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 9. I, no, I'm sorry, Psalms 2, excuse me. Psalm 2.9. In Psalm 2.9, God says to the Messiah, you will break the nations in pieces with a rod of iron. You'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. And, and so we see this child is destined to do that. He's, he is the Messiah, he's Jesus. We have the birth of Jesus. So this has actually gone back to the beginning of the period of time to, to look at it from another angle. Let's go, let's make another pass over this period of time, looking at it through different imagery. Who is the mother then? Well, of course we could say Mary, and and frankly the Catholic Church always has said this is Mary. This woman in Revelation 12 is Mary. And you know, it says she's described as having a crown of 12 stars, she's uh, clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, and you'll see much Catholic imagery has a picture of Mary with 12 stars on her head, standing in the moon, and the sun around her, because they are using this image to make it, uh, they they believe it's Mary. However, while it's reasonable to say it could be Mary, because it's after all the mother of the Messiah, and Mary was, but in Revelation, again, women aren't usually individual women. The harlot is not a a literal woman, but a city. The bride is not a literal woman, but but a city. Uh, This woman, I believe we can say represents Israel, or more probably, the faithful remnant of Israel that brought the Messiah into the world. Why? Well, the imagery of the sun and moon and 12 stars comes from Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph tells his dream to his brothers. He said, I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to me. And Jacob said, what? Will your mother and I and your 11 brothers truly bow down to you? In other words, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars represented Jacob and his family including his eleven sons and Joseph would be the twelfth. The eleven stars were bowing down to the twelfth. But the sun and moon and twelve stars then represents the family of Jacob and the ones that would bring the Messiah into the world. It was Israel that brought the Messiah into the world. And Israel suffered before that but under the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes and under the hands of uh, the Romans and so forth. I mean. The suffering, the, the birth pangs this woman's going through before the Messiah comes represents no doubt the hardships that the faithful in Israel went through before Jesus came, just before he came. The dragon is easy to identify because he is uh, said to be the Satan. In verse 9 it says he's the devil and Satan, he's the gold serpent. So we have here the remnant of Israel just before Jesus is born, going through the hardships they're going through which they did just in the the centuries just before Jesus was born. The devil knows the Messiah is coming. He wants to kill him from birth. And he tried to. When Jesus was born, Herod, inspired by Satan certainly, commanded all the baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem to be killed, trying to kill the Messiah. But it didn't happen. He escaped. In the vision, it skips over from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus. It doesn't tell the life of Christ, because it wants to focus on the consequence of his ascension. So he's born, and then it says, of course, the dragon did not succeed in in, uh, ending his career. Instead, he's caught up to God and to the throne of God, which is where Jesus is. He ascended at the end of his life to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So the first six verses make it rather plain. We've, We've seen the birth and ascension of Christ. Now, the woman is still in the picture, but (coughs) after her son had escaped, the dragon persecuted the woman, and she fled into the wilderness as the Jewish remnant, the Christian Jews, fled from Jerusalem into the wilderness to escape the Holocaust of A.D. 7D. So, the, the baby is born, the baby is ascended, his mother, the Jewish remnant, flee from Jerusalem and go into the wilderness where God keeps them alive as a church. The church has continued to survive not only the Jewish but the Gentiles as well who became part of the church, but initially it's the Jewish church that fled. Now the point here is we now see the story has given us the birth, the ascension uh, of the Messiah, and the flight of the Jewish remnant into the wilderness, and then it cuts away. And you see things in heaven, for the next several verses. It says there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon and his angels. And and Michael and his angels win. The dragon is cast out, and there's no more place found for him in heaven. And when that happens, in verse 10, a loud voice cries out and says, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the uh, the power of his Messiah because the accuser of the brethren has been cast out who accused them before God day and night. Now, the casting out of Satan is associated with salvation coming. Now this picture of Michael's angels driving Satan and his angels out of heaven and him falling has been interpreted three different ways by different interpreters. Some quote this verse to tell us about the origin of Satan. They say Satan was an angel and he led a third of the angels against God and he failed and he was cast out and then he encountered Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? As the devil. He became the devil. He was an angel first and then he became the devil. Well, this isn't talking about that. The the time frame is not right for that. When, When the dragon is cast out of heaven, that's when salvation has come. That's when the power and authority of Christ has come. Obviously, that's not before Adam and Eve. Other people, of course, the futurist view, holds that sometime in the tribulation, perhaps halfway through the tribulation, Satan will, in some sense, be cast out. That Perhaps the first half of the tribulation, this war between Michael and his angels, and Satan and his angels going on, and in the middle of the tribulation, Satan's cast out, and that's when the really bad stuff begins to happen for the remaining three and a half years. So they see that as a future thing. And yet... That doesn't fit the context either. What does? Well, who wrote Revelation? Well, John did. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Well, John did. Well, is the casting out of Satan mentioned in both books? It is, from the same author. If you look at John chapter 12, Jesus is, of course, in anticipation of Um, of his crucifixion, obviously. And in John 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, a term that Jesus uses for Satan. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. When? Jesus is talking about at the cross. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension are when the the ruler of this world was cast out. Now that's stated as a didactic point in John 12, 31. It's depicted as a symbolic vision in chapter 12 of Revelation where we see the dragon and his angels thrown out of heaven. And what happens then? The angels say, now salvation has come. Well, isn't that at the cross? Isn't that when Jesus died and rose again? That's when salvation came. That's when the power of his Christ, or the authority of his Christ came. Jesus, after he rose, said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All the authority he'll ever have was given to him when he resurrected. That's when the devil was cast out. And that's when salvation came. Now, it's interesting that when the story picks up again back on earth, now notice the first six verses were on earth. The birth of Jesus, the persecution of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the flight of the woman in the world. So that's all kind of historic events on earth. Then we had cut away to heaven and saw this battle and all this stuff, and the casting out of Satan and the announcements in heaven. And when that part is done, we go back to earth again. And notice, if you will, and maybe I should actually turn there. um, In verse 13, it says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman, Who had given birth to a male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she'll be nourished for a time and times and half a time. that's the same information we had in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God. She's prepared for uh, preserved for 1260 days. That's the same period of time, the same flight, the same woman. Now notice in verse 6 she fled in, after her son was caught up into heaven. In verse 13, she flees because the dragon's been cast out of heaven. It picks up the story at the same place it left off. Verses 7 through 12 was like a parenthesis showing what was going on in heaven. This is primarily a story about earthly things and the spiritual warfare that follows is on earth, but it corresponds to things that happened in heaven. And in order to tell us that we're now back resuming the story on earth, it gives the same information in verse 13 and 14 that it gave previously in verse 6 to say, okay, now back to our story. The woman flees to the Remember that happened in verse 6. Now let's continue the story from there on. That means that verses 7 through 12 were kind of saying, okay, This was going on earth. The the child was caught up to God and his throne. This resulted in the dragon being cast out. And once the dragon's cast out, he persecutes the woman and she flees. Now, what it says here in verse uh, 10 is that the accuser of our brethren has been cast out, who accuses them uh, before God day and night. Accused is more proper. He's cast out. He's not doing that anymore. He can't. Why? Because the blood of Jesus now has been shed and there's no accusations can stick to God's people. Satan's accusations in the Old Testament could stick. He accused Job. He accused uh, Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. The high priest was covered with filthy garments representing sinfulness and the, the Satan was seen there in Zechariah 3 accusing Zechariah, uh, Zerubbabel, and in others in the Old Testament times, Satan could rightfully accuse God's people because they were in fact sinners. He can still try, but it, it doesn't work because the blood of Jesus covers that. Paul said in Romans eight, "Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Satan may try, but God won't listen. His case is thrown out of court." This is a picture of. When Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends to the throne, Satan's career as accuser of the brethren is simply brought to an end. It's like he's he's the prosecuting attorney who's thrown right out of court. This is the only place in the Bible that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Perhaps you're familiar with that expression as an expression of Satan. It is. But it's only here. And it says in verse 11, And they conquered him, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even to the death. The saints conquer him. He is thrown down, and he makes war against them on earth again, and he persecutes the church, but they defeat him ultimately. Through the church age, the church is in a spiritual battle against Satan, but ultimately wins, because they have some superior weaponry. They've got the blood of Christ. Which, by the way, primarily applies to their response to him as the accuser. The accuser of the brethren. He comes down to accuse them. God won't hear the accusations, but sometimes he can make us feel condemned by accusing us. But we appeal to the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, well, sure, I did sin, but Christ has covered that. I repented and am clean. We appeal to the blood of the Lamb to defend ourselves against the accusations. Then the word of their testimony speaks of their preaching the gospel. In Revelation, the word testimony or witness is used many, many times, and it always refers to the gospel. The gospel is the testimony of the church. So they conquer Satan's kingdom by preaching the gospel to the world. Satan loses ground in his kingdom when the kingdom of God is spread by the preaching of the gospel. So they, over the course of church history, they defeat him. They're defended by the blood of Jesus from his accusations, and they are on the offensive preaching the gospel, taking territory from him, and they do so without any fear of death. They do not love their lives to the death. It is this this bravery and this warfare of the church that ultimately conquers Satan, according to this. Now, that warfare is depicted in the last few verses where Satan comes down and he persecutes the woman who has fled and the rest of her offspring, which are mentioned in the last verse, Uh, The rest of her offspring are the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. That's, since the woman is the Jewish church, the rest of her offspring are us, the Gentile church. We're also, you know, we're also part of that family. And we have the testimony of Jesus and we, um, we obey God. So this is the Satan attacking the church. Now, he first attacks by pouring out a flood of water out of his mouth to sweep her away, but the earth opens up and swallows the water, and the woman is spared. What comes out of Satan's mouth? Lies do. He's a liar and the father of lies. He deceives the whole world, it says in verse 9. He's the deceiver. Out of his his mouth pour rivers of lies. The church could be swept away by the heresies and by the false doctrines that he spreads, but isn't. The church survives all that. There's been many heresies, many false doctrines, but the church still survives. The world swallows it. The world doesn't have any discernment. They'll swallow the lies, but the church survives. Then it says he goes out to make war with her, which is more physical. There's two things that Satan has used against the church for the past 2,000 years. One is heresy, lies. The other is physical persecution. Now in chapter 13, we read of him calling two allies to help him in this age-long warfare. One is a beast that comes out of the sea, one is a beast that comes out of the land. Now the beast out out of the sea is often popularly referred to as the Antichrist, although John never uses that term to speak of it, and the second beast is sometimes popularly called the False Prophet, which he is called that later on in Revelation. He's called the False Prophet in verse, in chapter 16 and again in chapter uh, 20, (coughs) but (laughs) the first beast is never spoken of as the Antichrist but when people call him the Antichrist they usually are referring to the beast as an individual like a future world ruler who's very anti-God and makes people worship him or die and gives them a mark on their forehead or their hand and enforces that. They can't buy or sell without it. That's what chapter 13 describes. The second beast requires everyone to worship the beast and makes an image of him and requires everyone to worship the beast, the first beast. Now, who are these beasts? Well, we see Satan is standing on the seashore at the beginning of chapter 13, and he calls from the sea this first beast, and then we have to assume the second beast is on his side too. The first beast is red, it has seven heads and ten horns. So is the devil. If you look at the description of Satan in the beginning of chapter 12, he has seven heads and ten horns. And in chapter 17, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, in chapter 12, the devil has seven heads, ten horns, and is red. The beast also has seven heads and horns. And in chapter 17, he's said to be red. In other words, the beast just looks like the devil. He is the devil with skin on, it's the devil taking on some physical structure to persecute the church. But what is he? Is he a man? Well, that's the popular view, but think about it. Where do we have this idea of beasts elsewhere in Scripture? Well, Daniel, those seven beasts that came out of the sea, but they aren't individual men, those are empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, those are the four beasts. And by the way, this beast is a combination of all of them. The first beast of Daniel was a lion. This beast has the mouth of a lion. The second beast of Daniel was a bear. This one has the feet of a bear. The third beast in Daniel is a leopard. This one is like a leopard. The fourth one had ten horns. This one has ten horns. Notice that the four beasts of Daniel are all wrapped up into one beast here. And that's deliberate. Now, none of the beasts in Daniel were individual men. They were empires. This beast is a combination of all empires. There's there's not one thing in in the Bible to suggest the beast is an individual man but rather, like Daniel's beasts, is a political entity, an empire. Now, when you combine them all, what I see this as saying is throughout history, because the beast blasphemes for three and a half years too, if that three and a half years represents the whole period of the church history, then it means that the devil incarnates himself in political empires throughout the whole period of time. And he did so in the Roman Empire, he did so in you know, perhaps the Papal States, he did so certainly in the Communist world, did so in the Nazi world, he does so in the Muslim world. These these political entities persecute Christians. And I think the beast simply represents all political systems that Satan uses to persecute the church for the whole 2,000 years. Different ones at different times in different places. There might be two at the same time in different places. If, I mean, North Korea could be one of the horns of the beast, uh, or the heads of the beast. Uh, See, this is another reason to know that the beast is not an individual, because it has seven heads. And the seven heads are later said to be seven kings. In chapter 17 it says the seven heads are seven kings. Okay, that's not one man, it's an entity that has multiple kings. And the ten horns are ten kings. So you've got a lot of kings here, you've got a lot of political powers wrapped up in this one beast because it represents all the political powers of the whole age of the church that rise and fall, and it even has a head that's been slain or it received a mortal wound, but the beast survives. Now, it's, it's popular in the popular prophecy teachers say, yeah, the Antichrist is a man, he's going to get shot in the head, he'll be dead, but he'll rise from the dead and everyone will marvel. Wow, look, he came back from the dead. That doesn't say the beast dies. It says one of his heads dies. He's got six more good heads. He's, he's, he's going on. He's like a lizard who can lose their tail and grow another one. This, you know, you can kill one of the heads, but the beast lives on. I think what that's saying is, let's just say Nero was one of the heads when John was writing. Well, he got killed, but the beast lives on. There's other heads. There's other, you know, it's like a hydra. It's like whack-a-mole. You know, you get rid of one of them and it pops up somewhere else. Satan manifests himself... Again and again and again in different political structures. One of them can die, one can fall, but there's more where that came from. Satan's got plenty of political entities to exploit and to use to persecute the church. And therefore, the first beast, I believe, represents simply the concept of political powers employed by Satan in his warfare against the woman and her offspring, us, throughout the whole age. Now, the second beast, has two horns like a lamb, which everywhere else in Revelation, the lamb is Jesus. This is the only time the word lamb does not refer to Jesus. And I think the fact that it has two horns like a lamb is supposed to say it's like a fake Jesus, because although it's wearing sheep's clothing, remember Jesus said, beware of false prophets, they come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Here, the second beast is in sheep's disguise, he's got two horns like a lamb, but his mouth he speaks like a dragon. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When the, the words are the words of the dragon. You know, Aesop's Fables has a story about a donkey that got no respect in the animal kingdom until he found the skin of a dead lion. And he draped it over himself and walked around. Everyone respected him because they thought he was a lion. In fact, he was so proud of himself, he decided to let out a roar. But of course, donkeys can't roar. He and then everyone knew he was a donkey. He looked like a lion until he opened his mouth. Then they knew he was just an ass. Now, that's like this this beast. He he looks like a lamb, like a false prophet wearing sheep's clothing, but it's really a wolf inside. When he opens his mouth, you can tell it's really the dragon. It's really Satan. It's not really Jesus. It's, It's a false religious system. And I believe that as the first beast represents All the political systems throughout Christian history that Satan has used to persecute the church, that the second beast represents all the religious systems, false religions that Satan has used to deceive. Remember, he deceives two ways, or he fights the church two ways, with deception and with outright persecution. As he did at the end of chapter 12, he has done for the past 2,000 years. The first beast represents the agency of physical persecution through political powers. The second represents the agency of deception through various false religions and heresies and things like that. And that's true through the whole period of time. Now, the second beast... (coughs) I mean, there's details I'm skipping over. We just don't have time to deal with every detail. But the second beast supports the first beast. And this has always been true. Until very modern times, at least, all countries had state religions the Roman Empire did, the Grecian Empire did, you know, uh, throughout history, there was no separation of church and state anywhere. Whether well, it was a tribal group in Africa, they had a witch doctor that influenced the tribe, and, the, you know, the, it, it, it's, it's national religion, it's, it's, uh, it's state religion. Even in Europe, until America was founded, you know, Europe had Catholicism, was basically the state religion. And then, and then Lutheranism in Germany and, and, and other Protestant lands. Every nation had a state church, whether a good one or a bad one. But of course throughout history most nations have been pagan and their, their national religions were pagan. They were demonic. Um, they'd offer sacrifices to demons. It but the point here is false and demonic state power is supported by false religious power, generally speaking, that upholds it and enforces it. And that's true a hundred times throughout history in different places, and I believe that's what the two beasts represent. They both they're going on for the three and a half year period just like these other things. Now What about the mark of the beast? The popular teaching today is that there's gonna be an Antichrist who requires people to take an actual number uh, on their hand or their forehead, and that will replace cash as an economic means of exchange. Uh, There will be a cashless society. Because it says whoever whoever doesn't take the number of the beast is going to not be able to buy or sell. So this has been interpreted by many to mean that means it replaces cash. If you don't have the number, you don't have any means of barter or payment, so there's no cash society. Now, the, notice the Bible doesn't say it's a cashless society. It doesn't say that they cannot buy or sell because this mark is replacing cash. It could be they can't buy and sell because if you don't have the mark, people just don't want to do business with you. Not because there's no cash, but because you're a persecuted minority. The Jews experienced this in Germany in, pre, in Hitler's times. You know, people didn't want to do business with Jewish shopkeepers and things like that. Why? Because they were ostracizing them, they were persecuting them, they hadn't killed them all yet, but they were already marginalizing them and saying, you're not really one of us, we're not going to shop at your shop, we're not going to sell to you, and Christians have been treated that way in many times in history, too. In many places, persecutions take the form of economic boycott. So that if you weren't on the beast's side, if you didn't, if your loyalty to the beast was questioned, then people would persecute you. Now, I believe that this not-bind-or-selling son does not I I think it just represents all forms of persecution, just as all forms of martyrdom in Revelation are symbolized by being beheaded. Every time someone's dead or martyred, uh, essentially they, they are those who are beheaded for Christ. But not all martyrs are really beheaded, literally. Beheading is a form of martyrdom that often happen, but it, it stands as a representative for martyrs in general, whether they were literally beheaded or not. Maybe they're burned at the stake or killed some other way. Likewise, I think economic boycott, which is a non-lethal form of persecution, just simply refers to persecution and marginalization by the world, especially those who are loyal to the beast. They object to you not being loyal to the beast. Now, what is the mark of the beast? Well, <clears throat> when I was young, the famous prophecy teacher said, well, it's going to be a, uh, a laser tattoo. Not visible except under a black light. And you'll just like you have a credit card number, you'll have a, a credit number on your hand or your forehead. And at the place of purchase, you'll scan it and it'll deduct from your account just like it does now from a debit card. And that was the sexy new technology that everyone thought, oh, this is what the beast is going to do. You won't be able to buy or sell without this credit number. Now, nowadays, they don't talk that way. They talk about a chip now. Everyone's talking about the RFID chip, you know, it's going to be under your skin and so forth, and uh, and you won't be able to buy or sell. Well, there are some people and animals that have been had RFID chips put under their skin, but not so they could buy or sell or not. It basically holds their ID and their... Uh, health information, and things like that. I, I, I'm not gonna let anyone do it to me, not because I think it's the mark of the beast, because I don't like such intrusion into my privacy. I mean, I'm, I'd rather not. But, I don't think this is talking about a chip, I don't think this is about a literal mark at all. The hand and the forehead are, are important representations of your works and your thoughts. In the Old Testament, God told Israel, in Deuteronomy 6, he wanted them to bind his laws to their hand and between their eyes, on their forehead. This meant always have your actions. He didn't want them putting real... You know, Jews taking them too literally, of course, they they had these phylacteries. They'd actually take scripture portions, put them in these leather boxes, and they bind them to their hands or their forehead. You see Jews like this, the Hasidim in Israel today. You'll see them wearing these phylacteries, these little leather boxes strapped to their forehead that have scripture portions in them, because God said, I want you to bind my words to your forehead and to your hands. Well, that, that's not literally what he meant. Jesus kind of made fun of their phylacteries. Uh, he said, you make your phylacteries large, but you're not obedient. You know, the idea of bind your hand, bind your forehead to this to the law means your thoughts, what's, what your attention is given to, what's before your eyes. Uh, what's on your mind. Let your mind be governed by my laws. Let your actions, the hand means your works, governed by my laws. To have the mark on the hand or the forehead, it should be noted that in chapter 14 verse 1 of Revelation, it says the 144,000 have their father's name on their forehead. If you read directly from chapter 13 to 14, you've got two groups of people. Some have the beast's name on their forehead, some have God's name on their forehead. Now, in the Roman Empire, which is where all these people lived, they were familiar with seeing people with a name or a number or a mark on their forehead, because that was a normal practice when a slave ran away and was recaptured. They would usually brand them on the forehead or on the hand. Why there? Because that, those are the two things that you don't cover with clothing very often. No matter how much clothing you wear, your hand is usually still exposed and your forehead is usually still exposed. And therefore you could not hide easily who your master was. Once the master had his brand on you, like, like we brand cattle, or his name, or something representing him, he'd, he'd brand his runaway slave so they wouldn't be able to run away again. Because they can't go anywhere and conceal whose master, who their master is. It's, right, it's emblazoned on their face or on their hand. So having the mark of the beast or the mark of God on your forehead or your hand simply means it's obvious who your master is. By your thoughts and by your hands, your works, anyone can tell whose slave you are. You're either God's servant or you're a servant of the devil system. Now, you don't need literal marks for this to be true. This is true all the time. Your thoughts and your actions reveal plainly, as if it was written on your, across your forehead, if God is your master or not. Paul said in Romans 6, do you not know that whosoever you obey, his servant you are? People can tell who you're obeying and say, okay, you're obviously a servant of God, or you're a servant of the devil, you're, you're sold out to the devil's system. Now those who don't think and act like the devil's people stand out and are hated by those who do and often persecuted or ostracized. And, you know, one form of persecution is boycott, and they can't buy or sell because of that, at least not from the general public. But, of course, even at times like that, they can buy and sell from each other, and they can barter and so forth with sympathetic people, but uh, it's not talking about a cashless society or even a literal mark. It's symbolically saying everyone's either a servant of Satan in his system or a servant of God, and that's represented by having his brand on your forehead no one really has a brand that has god's name on their forehead and no one is expected to have the devil's brand on his forehead literally it's simply saying everyone's expected to toe the line and and obviously comply and be part of this a servant of this system and if you're not someone's going to be upset with you and and persecute you so that's what i understand about that now what about the number 666 there's uh, there's dozens of ideas about 666. I won't, I won't go into them all. But one answer is that if you take the, num- the name Caesar Nero, who was the emperor at the time that this was written, I believe, and you translate his name into Hebrew characters, the numbers, the numeric value of the characters adds up to 666. Now, notice John said, When he's giving the mark of the beast, there's an interesting thing that he says. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. Notice John thinks that his readers in the first century, if they are clever, can figure out who he's referring to. He obviously isn't talking about somebody in the 21st century. How could could any people in the seven churches he's writing to calculate and discover who some future person in the 21st century is. Obviously, he's referring to somebody they know of, they know of him, and the bright ones among them can figure out who he's referring to. And so it's somebody contemporary that his readers should be able, if they're smart enough, figure out who he's referring to. Now, I personally think it is referring to Nero, but that doesn't mean that Nero is the complete beast. He's just the one head of the beast that they are, confronting in their time. There are others. The beast has many heads, but the one that his readers need to be able to identify as the devil's agent in government is the Roman emperor of their time, Caesar Nero. He would die, there'd be others. The point is, the number of the beast in this case is the number of that particular manifestation of the beast that's happening at, in the time of his readers. It'd be someone else at another time but the beast with its many heads and many kings transcends the whole period. Not all of them will have a name that translates into 666 but the one current at the time would. And so that's what I understand about that. Now that brings us to the end of our little book and then we have chapter 14 and 15 and 16 and basically I can't go into this but to make a long story short I believe we're looking at A.D. 70 again, or the Jewish War. Many of the images that are used, especially in chapter 14, if you compare those images with Old Testament, where they come from, you'll find that it's about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And especially if you know Josephus' history, you'll realize many parallels exist. But the, the bowls of wrath in chapter 16 are said to be the last plagues. And whereas the trumpets... Brought disaster on a third of everything they affected. The bulls affect completely the same regions. You'll find that the same realms that are affected by the seven trumpets are affected by the seven bowls. The difference being the trumpets were warnings. They were partial judgments. This is the end. This is the downfall of uh, Jerusalem, I believe. I won't go into detail. We just can't take the time. Now chapter 17 brings us to the sixth segment of the book and it goes through chapter 19 and essentially he sees this harlot riding on the beast and she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and when she dies, the beast actually turns on her and kills her and when she dies, uh, you know, the, the world that made a lot of money off of her uh, is grieving and mourning but the righteous are rejoicing. Um, it says in chapter 18, verse 24, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on the land. Now that sounds like Jerusalem. Jesus actually said in Luke 13, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. He's being a little sarcastic and cynical, but because some prophets did die elsewhere, but he's basically saying Jerusalem is the one that you obviously typically kills the prophets. And Jesus said all the blood of the prophets are going to come on Jerusalem in that generation. So this woman, which is said to be Babylon, is apparently Jerusalem. Now, by the way, she's called the harlot. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem, when they're apostate, are called the harlot. In Isaiah chapter 1, God speaks of Jerusalem and says, how has the faithful city become a harlot? Hosea refers to Jerusalem as a harlot, or Israel as a harlot. Uh, Jeremiah does. Ezekiel describes in chapter 16 and chapter 23 uh, the Jews as a harlot because they are in covenant with God as a wife, but they cheat on Him by worshiping other gods. And so she's depicted as a harlot. No other nation was in covenant with God, and therefore none would be in a position to commit adultery against God than Jerusalem. Now, why would Israel, why would Jerusalem be called a harlot? Or why would she be called Babylon? Well, hey, she's already been called Sodom and Egypt and been likened to Jericho. It's just another of the same thing. Basically Jerusalem has become another Sodom. It's become another Egypt. It's become another Jericho. It's become another Babylon. And So this is, I believe, uh, again, about the fall of Jerusalem. And notice the beast, which we've identified as at least in John's day was Rome, the Roman Empire, was the beast of of that time and and period and place. Uh, The beast turns on her and kills her. And uh, that's what happened. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, the Roman Empire. She had ridden upon the beast in the sense that she received, you know, protection from Rome and so forth after they were conquered. And remember, they had loyalty to Rome. They didn't like Rome, but when Pilate said, shall I shall I destroy your king? He said to the Jews, they said, we have no king but Caesar. They professed their loyalty to Rome, although they hated Rome. They still were riding on Rome and trusting in Rome and depending on Rome. And it was Rome that turned on them and destroyed them in AD 70. Uh, Now, I ran through that so quickly because I want to talk about chapter 20 through 22. Chapter 20 is the most controversial chapter in the bible at least some have said so it's the only chapter that talks about what we call the millennium you may know there's lots of views of the millennium they have to do with how this chapter is interpreted there's a premillennial view a amillennial view and a postmillennial view very different from each other and all have been held uh, by perhaps a majority of christians at different times the thousand years, here's how it goes. In the first three verses of chapter 20, the dragon is bound with a chain put in a pit for a thousand years so he would not deceive the nations anymore for a while. There's three, chapters, or three verses then that describe this period of time when people are experiencing the first resurrection and, and the martyrs in heaven are reigning with Christ. And then there's three verses more, verses 7 through 9, at least part of 9, that talk about Satan being loosed again at the end for a little while and but and he brings the nations against the beloved city which is the church and fire from heaven comes down and consumes the wicked and Satan is then en- his career is ended he 's thrown into the lake of fire after that there's the resurrection of the dead there's the judgment and there's the new heavens and the new earth described in chapters twenty one and twenty two now The premillennial view takes the 1,000 years that Satan is bound as a literal 1,000 years. And they say when Jesus comes back, he will bind Satan for a 1,000 years. Therefore, Jesus comes back before the millennium. That's called premillennial. The premillennial return of Christ is that Christ comes before the millennium and institutes the millennium. That's called premillennialism. That means that when Jesus comes back, he doesn't institute the new heavens and new earth right away. Instead, there's a thousand-year interval between the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. And that, chapter 20, represents that. The post-millennial view holds that Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium. And the millennium is seen as a reference to a future circumstance where the gospel has been so successful that mostly the world has been converted and Satan is essentially unable to deceive the nations because the gospel has prevailed and everybody is, you know, knows the truth. And so Satan is for a thousand years unable to know it. But it's not a literal thousand years. Could be, could be a literal thousand years, but <laughs> it just means a long time. The post millennials believes that the church will convert the world essentially and that for a long time, could be a thousand years, maybe maybe it's symbolic for some other period of time, uh, the world will be basically operating under Christian principles by Christian leadership and Christian populace and so forth, and it will be a righteous world. But that Satan will be loose for a little while at the end of that, but will be defeated by Jesus coming back in fire from heaven. The amillennial view is a little bit, bit like that second view, but different. The amillennial view says that the binding of Satan at the beginning of the 1,000 years is symbolic for what Jesus did in his death and resurrection and ascension. Just like Jesus' ascension was the casting out of Satan from heaven in one image in chapter 12, in this imagery it's the binding of Satan. And it's all very graphic. He's in a pit with a chain and all that stuff, but of course uh, it's a dragon. Calling Satan a dragon is symbolic itself. He's not a reptile. He's, He's a spirit. A dragon is a symbol for Satan. The chain, the pit, are also no doubt equally symbolic. There's a graphic picture of Satan being greatly reduced in his ability to deceive the nations. Now he can still deceive individuals, but he can't keep the nations in the dark anymore because Jesus sent his disciples to evangelize the nations. So Satan cannot, as he once did, deceive all the nations. At one time only Israel knew the truth, and the nations were in the dark. Satan had them. He could deceive the whole nation, so that weren't Israel. Not anymore. Jesus sent us out to make disciples of the nations, and Satan can't deceive them anymore. He can deceive people, individuals, Jews and Gentiles, but he doesn't own the nations anymore as his realm that he can keep in the darkness. The light has come. Now, that Jesus bound Satan when he came the first time is actually stated in the Bible. Not in these kind of graphic terms of a pit and a chain and all of that, but that's just the revelation's kind of apocalyptic imagery to make a point. The point is that Jesus said he had come and he had bound the strong man, Satan, and was plundering his house. He says you can't plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man. And he's describing his own ministry, casting demons out of people, as he's taking Satan's property from him. He's delivering people from Satan's prison. He has come to Satan's domain and he's plundering it. And Satan can't stop him. It's as if Satan's the owner of the house, but he's bound, and he can't, he's just watching the home invader come take all his stuff. That's the imagery Jesus used. Now Satan wasn't literally bound any more than he is literally bound now. He's not literally bound, he still does stuff. The imagery is saying that before Jesus came, Satan ruled unchallenged, no one could stop him. He's the most powerful force, you know, ruling the world. Jesus came a greater, a stronger man than he, bound him, took advantage of him. Rendering him incapable of resistance, so that Christ's kingdom, which has now invaded Satan's domain, can now move forward and take over the nations through the evangelization of gospel. Satan can't stop it. He's as, as, as impotent to stop it, and to stop this plundering of his former domain as if he was bound, as if he was in a pit, okay? That's what Jesus said he had done. He had bound the star man. In Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus, through the cross, disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a triumphal display of his victory over them. In Hebrews 2.14, it says that Jesus, through death, destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Through his death, Jesus destroyed the devil. The word destroy in the Greek is katergeo. It means to reduce to inactivity. It doesn't mean to annihilate, it just means to reduce to inactivity. So what it says in Hebrews 2.14 is that Jesus, through death, reduced Satan to inactivity. Really? Is he inactive? Well, not entirely, but much less capable of doing anything than he was before Jesus came. Satan ruled the world, apart from Israel, without the slightest challenge for 4,000 years. And Jesus came, and now a third of the world's population today professes themselves to be Christian. They're probably not all Christians, of course, but a third of them know the gospel, and they're in all nations. You know, Satan can't deceive all the nations anymore. Once again, it's not saying he doesn't deceive. He does. He deceives individuals. This is talking about the nations as a block of humanity, which Satan once had unchallenged, right, to keep them all in the dark, keep them all deceived. That's The gospel has now penetrated those regions with light and with the knowledge of God, and someday the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, the prophets say. And that's from the evangelistic efforts of the church. But the thousand years, then, represents the period of time of the present age. But at the end, when Satan is loosed again, it seems to say that at the end of this present age, there will be a, a brief period of time, I hope it's very brief, where Satan is loosed to deceive all the nations again, which seems to mean the church is now on the defensive. It's very reminiscent of the two witnesses. They witness, you know, without being able to be destroyed for three and a half years. Then Satan seems to defeat them for three and a half days. This is like the church goes on unstopped for a thousand years and Satan seems to put us on the defensive for a little while at the end. There's, There's a longer period, of the church's progress and invulnerability, followed by at the end a very short period, where Satan seems to get the upper hand again, but he doesn't, because at the end of that little season, we read fire from heaven came down and destroyed the enemies. Paul said about the second coming of Christ in Second Corinthians one 2 Thessalonians. Excuse me, I said Corinthians. Second Thessalonians one eight. It says, Jesus will come in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and don't know, uh, do not obey the gospel. That's what we see in Revelation 20 and verse 9, flaming fire coming down. That's the second coming of Christ. And what follows? The resurrection of the dead, the judgment, and the new heavens and new earth. Everywhere the Bible says the new heavens and earth will come when Jesus comes and when we're resurrected. So, the thousand years I believe, this is all millennialism, I believe it, it represents the present age. Jesus has bound Satan, so to speak. We're not supposed to understand that Satan's not active or he's not doing anything. It just means that his power has been so curtailed that it can be dramatically described as if he's chained or bound, while the church and Christ plunder his former domain, which is the earth, by preaching the gospel and bringing souls out of darkness into the light. Now. What happens at the end then, and I only have about five minutes, chapter 21 and 22 give us the new heavens the new earth, and most of it's a description of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is descending from God out of heaven to to the new earth. And much of what we think of as heaven is really a description of the new Jerusalem, which isn't in heaven. It is now, but when Jesus comes back, it's going to descend and be on the earth. Jesus is going to reign over the earth, the Bible says. In fact, Jesus said we are too. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is going to reign over the nations, the Bible says. When Jesus comes back, he's going to redeem the earth. There's going to be a new heaven, new earth. The curse will be removed. It says in second, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 22, verse 3 of Revelation, it says there is no more curse. The curse that came on the world through the fall will be no more. It, we're told there's no more sickness, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. That is, all the negative things that came uh, from the fall are no more. We're now in an earth that's unfallen. It's like God has restored what he made in the first place. Earth is a perfect domain for people. We will be in our resurrected bodies immortal. So, as God made man originally to have dominion on the earth, and presumably if man had not sinned, he'd would have eaten of the tree of life and lived forever and would still be here. Adam and Eve would still be on the planet. They would have populated it with their offspring, as we are, their offspring, but they'd still be around. There's no reason for them to die. God made people to live on earth, not heaven. There's no promise in the Bible that people live forever in heaven. What the Bible does teach, I think, is that if you and I die as Christians, we go to heaven, but only until Jesus returns. We will come back with him when he returns, he'll establish the new heaven, new earth, as it was when he gave it to Adam and Eve, and it'll be, you know, it won't be fallen anymore. And we will dwell with God and Christ on this earth. It says in Psalm 115, verse 16, Psalm 115, verse 16, it said, Heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he's given to the sons of men. The earth is the domain that God made for man. Jesus, the son of man, is going to reign over the earth because he became a man like us, and we're going to reign with him. Who will we reign over? I do not know. We're not told. But we are told we'll reign with him on the renewed earth which will have none of the effects of the fall. And that description is in chapters 21 through 22. Now that leaves a great number of things unsaid, undescribed, uncommented on, obviously. We took, what, three hours or less to cover 22 chapters, any one of which could have, you know, we could have occupied the whole the whole sessions today with any one of those chapters. So that's just the frustration of going through the Bible that quickly. But uh, again, I just want to leave you with the fact that uh, my website is thenarrowpath.com. My lectures, verse by verse through the whole Bible, are there for free. You can listen to them, MP3 files, vows, including Revelation. 20 probably lectures going through Revelation. So we got, we've got uh, verse by verse, lots of detail. That's true of every book of the Bible I've got my lectures on. And uh, you can also get them on the, on the app. If you have an iPhone especially, although there's an Android app too, but it doesn't have the same functionality in some ways. But the iPhone app, The Narrow Path, if you go to App Store, thenarrowpath.com, You'll find the app has all those lectures there. You can listen to every lecture on your phone. Also you can listen to my radio show which is about to take place in about 10 minutes uh, every day. So congratulations, you have finished perhaps for most of you the first time reading through the Bible and studying it through. Hopefully not the last. Don't go away saying, oh I've read the Bible now; I don't have to read anymore. No, you just got started. (laughs) Study it in depth, read it continually. Meditate on it day and night, and you'll flourish in your spiritual life. If you kind of say, I'm kind of tired of it now, there's kind of a cram course, I I think I'll take some time off. It's not good for you to take time off. It's food.
0: It's food for your soul, and you'll starve without it.